Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is July the 18th, um, full swing summer now. Actually, before we start today, I'd like to, I guess, <laughs> begin where we left off last time and um, and do a little fact check on myself. It was brought to my attention that <laughs> my favorite quote that I had uh, had said I might even get tattooed on myself, <laughs> I, was, I was misattributing to... <laughs> To Tennyson, uh, the power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and it is it is not Tennyson. And I don't know how long I have been attributing it to him, um, but he is a, a different poet who wrote one of my favorite poems, "The Charge of the Light Brigade." But never said this. This was uh, a, a quote by Lord Acton, who I actually don't know much about other than this quote uh, that I've been using for the better part of the, like the last 20 years of my life. So that's a little sad. I'd like to start off by correcting the record. Well, that's great integrity on your part. And luckily we corrected this before you got said tattoo on you misattributed. So just in case that that is still in the plans for the future, at least you can attribute to the right person. (laughs) Yeah. But other than that, how are we, how are we doing? How's uh, bar studying? Yeah. Yeah, th- there's nothing else besides that. <laughs> uh, it's funny sometimes people are like, "What's going on?" I'm like, "Or oh, what's new?" I'm like, "Ah, nothing. Nothing is new except for this." But we're getting down to it. This will probably be the last, if or one of the last episodes we do before D Day next week. Uh, not that don't want to be overly dramatic, but uh, that's that's really all that we've been doing these days. And so, knock on wood that it goes well next week. Yes, we are all at a gentleman's journey agreement very uh hopeful that uh that it all goes well uh this time around so that we have more time for podcasts but we are very glad that you've carved out some time to chat with us here today so with that what are uh what are we doing this week anything for you ricky uh this week we have one of our periodic episodes we're going to do a 6 and 60 episode this week which we enjoy doing because we get to hit on a bunch of different topics in relatively short uh time time spans we're going to try to keep ourselves honest this this week and just do these segments in approximately 10 minutes uh, but we also hope that people out there enjoy it as always if if you have feedback for us let us know but we've gotten good feedback on these episodes so this week's 6 and 60 is has kind of an international version. And so we're going to be hitting on developments in NATO, in Russia, in Ukraine, in Israel, in Greece, and in Sudan. So a decidedly international version, actually, Ricky. And we're excited to get into all of those topics. Before we do, a quick reminder, everyone on the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables in Destin's Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Uh, Ricky, our July newsletter went out last week, and we included some piece of trivia in that and got phenomenal responses. Thank you to everyone that reached out to us either via text on Instagram or we responded to our emails. We got some great guesses. 
our listeners are better at trivia, it seems, than we are, certainly for those questions that we posed in, in the newsletter. But I actually have another bit of trivia for you, Ricky, having to do with trees and wood, and perhaps the listeners will enjoy it as well. So, Ricky, not all trees grow big and strong. You know, and I think you can get this just by deductive reasoning, and maybe you actually do know this by itself. Do you know what the name of the shortest tree in the world is called? The name of the shortest tree, like as in diminutive in stature? Yes. The miniature tree? The mini tree? That, that's, see, that's a fair guess. It's called the dwarf willow. Dwarf willow it lives in northerly and arctic tundra regions and rarely grows more than a couple of inches high, roughly up to your ankle. To my ankle? Wow, that is a small tree. It is indeed. All right. With that, <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> We're going to start with NATO, an alliance that seemed to be in decades-long decline until Vladimir Putin and Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago, and now very much seems to be reinvigorated. And that was kind of the premise of President Biden and a lot of main NATO leaders was that the alliance was stronger than Putin had thought or expected. And I think it was reasonable for him to think that the alliance had waned in recent decades post the fall of the Soviet Union. But in recent years, it's been forced to come together to defend Ukraine, which it has, and also is now been admitting new members. So as people probably know, Finland Finland and Sweden applied together jointly to uh, become members of NATO back in the winter. In April, Finland was admitted into NATO as its 31st member, but Sweden's membership had been held up by Turkey, um, specifically by the Turkish president who was just re-elected, uh, re-elected President Erdogan, uh, and his reluctance to admit Turkey or give his approval to admit Turkey into the alliance because every for a new for a country to join NATO it needs a unanimous approval of all NATO members Turkey was holding up uh, Sweden's bid to join NATO because Erdogan believed that Sweden was harboring what he considers Kurdish terrorists and so this had been a long source of tension within NATO and NATO had a big summit last week in Vilnius, Lithuania, capital of Lithuania. And this was going to be one of the the chief kind of talking points of this is would Erdogan relent and allow Sweden into it? That mystery was cleared up before the summit even started by a handshake agreement between the the Swedish president and the the Turkish president and uh, Jens Stoltenberg, who is NATO's like kind of acting head. Uh, And so that was big news. So Sweden, it appears that their path is going to be cleared for them to join NATO as the 32nd member. That has a number of implications that I'd love to discuss with you. It's not a done deal because a lot of people think there was some likely backroom maneuvering to allow that to happen, including the United States giving F-16s or like the fighter jet to Turkey, which had been previously reluctant to do. It appears that the United States agreed to give Turkey those F-16s in exchange for them removing their blockade of, of Sweden. 
However, President Biden doesn't have the ability to do that. That's up to Congress to do. So that's a hurdle that still has to be cleared. The second major talking point out of the NATO summit from last week was whether Ukraine would be what the path would look like for Ukraine to join NATO, because that's been a huge goal of, of the Ukrainian President Zelensky for over a year now. That was obviously one of Russia's biggest fears and one of the reasons that they said that they were invading Ukraine because they didn't want Ukraine to join NATO. NATO has been reluctant to assure Ukrainian ad- admission to NATO because if and when Ukraine is admitted into NATO, NATO is now responsible for not just like, hey, providing arms to Ukraine like it is now, but actually responsible for the defense of because it's responsible for the common defense of any member. So uh, the, the big kind of takeaway out of that was that it looks like the path has been cleared for Ukraine to join NATO if and when this war with Russia is resolved. So kind of big picture, it looked like it might be a very controversial or contentious meeting in Lithuania ended up being a very productive meeting for a, a number of countries. And certainly probably if you're, if you believe in president Biden's foreign policy over the past few years, a very successful meeting for president Biden. So what were your takeaways from the NATO summit specifically around Sweden and Ukraine? Well, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, this is a treaty specifically designed or aimed against Russia, right? Like its inception was more of a, okay, well, the Soviet Union now has quite a few countries in the eastern part of Europe, so we need to create some kind of coalition to combat them, obviously, what happens in 89, the Soviet Union falls apart, and then there's like, well, these like, Previously, Soviet countries potentially have some concern that they may get reabsorbed into into Russia or something like that. Russia, of course, had very, you know, wasn't was not in a great position at that point has since, you know, due to some natural resources and some other kind of strategic moves kind of built itself up a little bit. But still, I mean, I think that this is a little bit. I don't know. I don't I don't know that it matters that much, this particular move with Sweden and Finland, because of where they're located relative to someone, you know, a country like Ukraine, which is basically within striking distance of Moscow. I don't know that geography in northern Russia all that well. I know that Finland does share a border with Russia, but like what's up there? I'm assuming not that much, but I I could be mistaken. Any Russians that listen to the podcast, don't don't at me. Feel free to correct me, though. Um, I I think there is, you know, something to be said for that not being as strategically uh, as much of a problem for Russia as something like a Ukraine joining joining NATO. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all kind of like a further provocation and i still think that if the if we have a goal of like dealing with this problem and potentially like one ending the war like these kinds of things in the middle of it are not like sure they're like shoring up some resolve for western europe and obviously the united states but in terms of like getting us any closer to resolving this or like ending this conflict doesn't seem to be doing that russia still has nuclear weapons like lest we forget it's like at some point you can only poke the bear so far and put them so far into a corner that 
something like something stupid doesn't happen. Um, and I don't know that we're, you know, that there is a, like a ton to be gained by this move. Yeah. I mean, I, I've generally found that this track, which is, you know, pretty consistent, whether Republican or Democrat of like, Russia is the number one enemy and we have to treat them as such as if that's going to be true till the end of time. I'm just not sure that I'm sold on that as being like the most productive move for us, for anyone from a foreign policy perspective. Yeah, that's fair. I think selfishly, as like just as as an American, I think that this is good. Like we've continued to gain allies to people that like want to join our cause. There's there's something to be said for that, that these countries, whether for Sweden and Finland that were maybe reluctant to join NATO previously or Ukraine, which was as a former Soviet country, always kind of in that gray area, them joining NATO, I think is a good thing. I think it's fair to say though, that increasing military tension and military alliances that had previously been in place and have previously been like, as I had said in my start, like declining the intention over the past few decades. Now, like this ratchet up intention is, is not a good thing for the world, but I do think good thing for NATO and the United States. I will say you're maybe underestimating the impact of Sweden and Finland a little bit. So it, it almost doubles NATO's border with Russia uh, because Finland has 800 mile land border, not to mention like their, the naval the sea border that they have with Russia up in the Arctic. Uh, and Sweden is a really strong Navy. It builds its own fighter jets. Finland, there's still cons- a mandatory cons- conscription for its uh, for the men in its country. So they also have um, a, str- a fairly strong like military culture. They've been at war with Russia before, right around World War II. Uh, and up in, by Finland, by Helsinki, Finland's capital, St. Petersburg is up there, which is a key Russian city on the Baltic Sea. And this is going to increase NATO's presence significantly in the Baltic for Sweden, for Finland, and also for all the NATO, the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. And which, again, I think is good in a lot of ways for NATO's defense, but it also increases the possibility of miscalculation or tension rising in the Baltic and in the Arctic. So I, I do think... There's there's a lot to be said for for these countries joining the alliance. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly argue about that that there's some, or I think you can, I mean, as you have laid out a pretty strong case that there are some strategic advantages for NATO to having these members in there. Still, when I mean, if you look at like Sweden's military spending, like quick Google, so it could be a little bit off about seventy billion Swedish kroner, which is about 6 billion us dollars right so put put that into context with our military budget of 700 billion or you know close to a trillion right it's it's not even a drop in the bucket and how much of that are now they going to contribute to nato okay probably i would assume not a ton so in finland i i don't know much about the finnish economy but i'm assuming that it's like at on par with sweden if not smaller so they're there's going to be limitations of like what they can realistically like can pony up for NATO given what they operate on just in general. Like this is no slight against them. I mean, personally speaking, I wish our budgets resembled something similar, but like the reality is 
it's now these are potentially more countries that we have to we have to fund if something goes down. Yeah, that's fair. We're we're approaching if I'm not already exceeding our 10 minutes here. So I'm I'm going to move us on from there even though I think we both still have plenty to say about that as usual. I, final final thing Ricky is I don't know if you've seen this. NATO is, I'm sure all listeners know, stands for the North Atlantic Treaties Organization. As Ricky said, it was designed in the aftermath of World War II to combat the rising influence of the Soviet Union. But there have now been some pushes, particularly from like the United States and Great Britain, to expand NATO into Asia and, and include countries like Japan, South Korea, Australia, perhaps like, you know, down the road, the Philippines or India. And I think that's really, really interesting and something to keep an eye on down the line. It's Macron, the French president, is the one that's like, guys, what what are we doing here? Uh, but it's it's something that I think we should keep an eye on for the future. You got anything you want to quickly chime in on that? I'll, I'll let you leave it on that note. Great. All right. So sticking with this similar topic, of we haven't talked about the Russian coup that was or wasn't in some ways that happened almost a month ago now but really just a kind of a wild story uh people probably know that russia employed employs a lot of mercenaries in addition to the russian army in in their military operations they have long done that they have done that all over the world including in the middle east and africa and, and now in the ukraine the leader of one of those bands of, of mercenaries, Yevgeny Prigozhin, seemed to have kind of rebelled against the Russian government, not against Vladimir Putin specifically, but about against the generals. And he went as far as saying that a lot of like the pretenses of Russian aggression in Ukraine were not correct, were not true, that, again, he didn't name Putin specifically, but went after a bunch of the generals saying that, like, Vladimir Putin had been misled into getting into Ukraine, and he took his forces, the Wagner mercenary group, and marched within 125 miles of Moscow, including taking, like, a a military depot in a a major Russian province, and some sort of deal was kind of cut that Prigozhin was going to go to Belarus, he may or may not have done that. Rumors are that he actually went back to Russia and then met with Vladimir Putin. I don't know. It was it was a very bizarre sequence of events. But Ricky, one of the things that stood out to me is that I think a lot of NATO leaders, Biden included, would like Putin to be removed from power. But it became apparent pretty quickly that we were not real cool with how he would be removed if he would be removed power in this sort of way. And I don't think his power was ever truly threatened here, although certainly he comes across looking weaker in a lot of ways. But all of a sudden, there's a lot of concern. As you noted earlier, Russia is in possession of the the most number of the greatest number of nuclear weapons in the world, where we now have a potentially less stable mercenary group leader who's marching on Moscow and taking control of some Russian weapons. So I I thought that whole saga from a NATO perspective, let alone from a Russian perspective, was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it honestly feels like it's straight out of like a bond or like a Mission Impossible. Yeah, or Tom, like the Tom Clancy books, like, like, it just feels like if Tom Clancy wrote this in the 1980s, you'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, and now it's actually up. Yeah, I... I don't know what to make of it truthfully. I do think that at least some recognition of like, sure, we want Putin gone, 
but who would replace him is important because we historically have been obsessed with the regime change. Yeah. Not who, what is the regime going to change into um, as like a dictum of our foreign policy? Like we don't like this guy. So whatever is going to be better than him. And then it was like, I don't know if that's right. true. I'm pretty sure this guy has committed war crimes, like in all sorts of different places, Sudan and, uh, you know, yeah, wherever the Wagner group has gone, not that our own, I forget what Blackstone or black, whatever, Blackwater, or we, like we've had some of our own mercenary forces have similar atrocities in other places, maybe not similar, but we've had some issues with that type of like using that's beside the point. If if we get back to this whole thing, I mean, I think you said it, I think you may have texted it to me when the news first came out. It was just like a live by the sword, die by the sword kind of thing. Like when you are con- in the business of kind of consolidating power by either jailing people, exiling people or buying people off. And then you have to resort to using mercenary troops to supplement your own forces. Like eventually... Or not eventually, but, you know, something like this doesn't necessarily come as a surprise. I gotta imagine, although it was, like, played down for the United States, as much as, like, we can say that maybe what happened in Ukraine was a shock, there's still a degree to which Putin is a very much a known commodity, whereas somebody like this would not be in, like, you know, what... His, I mean, it, I think it's been hard enough for us to figure out what Putin's endgame is. What this guy's endgame might be seems like it would be even, or at least as difficult to figure out. And so there is that. Um, I mean, that's 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 like a scary thought as well. Yeah, I pretty much agree with everything you said there. I, in some ways, I think it was almost the perfect result for NATO and the United States, where it, it shows like a chink in Putin's armor because he's able to maintain a sense of control in Russia, even though under the surface, when you're operating all of these different groups of these, as we like to call it, what are we, uh, like the autocrats, um, the oligarchs, right? All of these mercenaries that are kind of controlling their own forces. It seems like, hey, Putin's in charge of all of them, keeping everyone in line. And this was this was a blow to that clearly. And ironically enough, who did he summon to try to come to the defense of Moscow was like a Chechen mercenary to come in. And it's like, okay, he was controlling his own kind of private militia there. And so I was always, or have been frustrated over this last year where it seems like the Russian military was just throwing these mercenaries who many of whom were recruited from Russian prisons being like, you can come work for us. And if you live, you're going to, like then you can be free, you can like gain your freedom, like almost like ancient Rome or something like like a gladiator. And then they get sent to like the heaviest fighting, which it just almost seems unfair to me where like you're sending these people, and it's just more bodies where Ukraine is trying to fight for like their country, whatever. Again, we digress. But uh, so I, I I think it was good that it showed this this chink in Putin's armor and maybe made him a little bit weaker at home, but it didn't go far enough where we do have like a little bit of a madman who's now in charge of the the world's largest nuclear arsenal. So I in in some ways I think it worked out. I, I to your earlier point, it'd be one thing if there was an election and Navalny was elected. Right? I think everyone would be like very in favor of something like that. But the the fear, some of all fears, to go back to like the 
Tom Cruise reference is that like someone who is even less stable than the elected quote unquote elected president is now in charge and what that would do for global stability. Yeah. Maybe we put a pin on that one and we'll get on to the next segment. All right, staying in the same region, but uh, slightly switching gears here. Um, the United States recently agreed to supply, and I think they have actually started arriving in Ukraine, um, cluster munitions. Um, so cluster munitions, for those who are not familiar, I'm not super familiar, are basically uh, bombs within bombs. And so they carry with them like tons of like basically small grenades that can be spread over large areas in a single sort of like missile launch or projectile launch. Um, And in general, uh, they are uh, obviously very effective, but they're um, very dangerous in terms of how much collateral damage um, you expect. Obviously a bomb that is launching hundreds of bombs is not going to be nearly as precise as like a guided missile or some kind of a drone. Um, further problems are uh, that a lot of times these bombs don't all explode upon impact. And so what happens is that you essentially have these like uh, dud grenades that will, you know, sit on the ground, eventually get either covered in dirt or rained over. And then at some point in many of the places that they've been used, um, when the fighting's over, a civilian, often children, will pick them up and like landmines that we had problems with or that we uh, used in Laos and Vietnam, um, you know, the, often the collateral damage is our young kids in, in these areas. And basically in 2008, there was a convention um, like adopted through the United Nations to kind of ban the use of cluster munitions, uh, of course. Uh, and this was, yeah, close to 15 years ago, and the, the holdouts were the United States, Russia, Ukraine, and, and a handful of others. Um, so <laughs> uh, this this is, I, I think this is, for me, a little bit of the theme of the episode, right? Because on the one hand, we have this notion of the United States sort of continuing to back Ukraine through this, like, um, under the guise of like this principled stance for democracy and Western thought and freedom and, you know, a moral obligation. And this is like a human rights issue. And on the other hand, we're doing so by supplying something like cluster munitions. And I don't want to pretend like Russia doesn't have these, Russia's never used these, but this has been the argument that plagues the United States always, which is when we, want to take the high road and yet take the low road, torture in Afghanistan, in Iraq, right? Like, well, whatever are the people that we're going against are doing this. So we have to do this in order to, to be able to, you know, advance our cause. It makes it much more difficult. And then I think once you start to lose the good, well, I mean, depending on who you talk to, the, the argument may have already been lost, but like, if, it becomes clear that you can't make the argument that this is like you're, you're on the side of good here. It, it just becomes more difficult um, in general. And I think 
for the United States that really likes to tout principles and morals as sort of a guiding uh, light when these types of actions are taken, it just, I don't know, it leaves, it leaves a, a sour taste, I think. And I'm curious how you view a move like this in general, um, whether you think that, you know, it's a sort of a Machiavellian ends justify the means here. It's a great reference there because that's really what it is. This is a tough one because what Ukraine is saying is that we don't have enough weapons to defend ourselves right now, that Russia is just pouring so many men, so many uh, munitions at Ukraine that Ukraine can't keep up. And despite all of the support Ukraine has gotten from the United States and the rest of NATO, our manufacturing can't keep up. And so why would you turn to cluster munitions? Because the United States has, I think, something like 4.7 million of these munitions just laying around. The United States claims that we haven't used them since the Korean War. That's up for debate, I believe. Uh, but it was one of those things where like, if we can't manufacture traditional munitions and get them to Ukraine quickly enough, then we can take these that are we already have stockpiled. And of course, Ricky, like the argument is, and this is the argument that Biden's making, is that like the ends do justify the means. Is that like so that we so we take the high ground here and we get to pat ourselves on the back and feel good, and then Russia just takes Ukraine and all of all of these Ukrainian lives have been lost in vain and far more millions more potentially could be lost with Russia being able to win the war, not not to mention what that does to democracy in Europe, in the world, and the United States vital security interests, which is theoretically one of the reasons why we're over there anyway. And so just to take a moral stance and then lose the war isn't worth it. I have a hard time with that argument. I, I, I do. And I I think you really have to twist yourself in some like mental moral pretzels to to make that argument. Because like you said, we are at, at least we're portraying ourselves as like on the force of good and that Biden's the force of evil here. And I like generally believe that is true. But when you do stuff like this, and it's not only that Russia has these munitions, they've used them. I think it's it's pretty clear that they've used them against Ukraine. But that was an argument, at least at the beginning, Ricky, for us to get in to defend the Ukrainians. And if you look at some of the speeches, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who's the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, when it first started, she gives a speech on the floor of the United Nations saying that uh, Moscow is using, quote, exceptionally lethal weaponry, including cluster munitions, that has no place on the battlefield and is banned under the Geneva Convention. That her speech, the State Department later has cut no place they've edited her speech that she gave and now if you go look in the state department's website some of that is cut because of what the united states is now doing and and jen stoltenberg nato secretary general i mentioned him earlier he referred to russia's use of uh cluster munitions as quote this is brutality this is humane this is inhumane this is violating international law so for us to say all that where we're right in saying that and then a year later go and do it ourselves and be like the ends justify the means I have a hard time with that. Yeah. I don't I don't know that there is a ton more to add. I I I think that that like that yeah, I to me 
the whole purpose of having a moral high ground is that you are like doing something for, and that often means that you make decisions that don't like end the way that you would want them to like that. They're not, it's, I guess there's no, there's no way to, to do one and guarantee the other. And, and, but that's like the point, right? Like you can't, like your, your principles don't always mean that you end up with the result that you want, but you have the principles just the same. And that's like, if there's nothing to lose by having your principles and those aren't really anything to stand on. So this to me is, yeah, it's, it's, it's really sad and problematic. And, and again, I, I think that the end result that we are sort of afraid of, which is Russia potentially winning this war, whatever that means, doesn't result in a Russian occupation of Ukraine, or at least not if they are smart, because, you know, what like we know, you know, I, I mean, again, if we go back and use the analogy, like if Russia started sending cluster munitions to Iraq and was like, here, go ahead and use these at like in and twofold, A, that would be a huge provocation for uh, the U.S. to say, OK, now Russia is def- like, you know, if they hadn't been able to say it before, here's yet another thing. Now that now that sort of the rest of the world, besides Russia and the United States, view this as a, as effectively a war crime using cluster munitions, then, yeah, there's I I don't even think that this is necessarily like I understand like we don't have any more regular munitions to send. That in and of itself is just like a scary problem that like how did a, one country basically use up i mean obviously we have stockpiles for ourselves but like use up all of our whatever ancillary stockpiles in less than a year and a half given the size that they are and 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 what's going on and yeah it's um it's definitely problematic and it i think it further enables countries like russia to say that they're just like us the only difference is they think they, they don't like us the way we don't like them. Yeah, I, I think what you said about like principles being easy to stand on when they're going well and there's that doesn't cost you anything. That's exactly right. It's like that character that was built in times of toughness and adversity doesn't make character reveals character. It's like what well, this was a hard decision. And I know that it went back and forth. The Biden administration, Ukraine has been asking for these munitions really since the start of the war, because as you said, they are effective. And the Biden administration went back and forth on it. And I guess when push came to shove and they didn't have any other options, like this was their moment. And not exactly, I, I think, a profile in courage to send these munitions. And as you correctly noted, we're not going to know the effects of these really for years. Like we might be able to see like the effects on a surface, like the moral effects right now and be upset with that. But this war is going to end at some point and there are going to now be thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of these munitions that are there for whoever lives thereafter, whether they be Ukrainians or Russians, that people are probably going to be maimed and, and die by. And that's, that's the real stuff that we probably won't won't ever make the news because it's going to be in the future. But is it's the actual real life cost of the United States making a 
what we think is a poor moral choice. Yeah. On to the next one. All right, switching gears a little bit, or at least stepping back from Russia, wanted to do a quick recap of some of the goings on in Israel uh, recently. So a couple of weeks ago, um, it, the Israeli government sort of authorized raids on the Janine refugee camp. Um, this name is probably going to be familiar to people, but, you know, drone strikes, air raids, and then obviously ground, ground troop movement um, through a Palestinian refugee camp. While at the same time, or you know, shortly thereafter, they're kind of pushing through these legal reforms, or you know, trying to push through these legal reforms. There are the protests are are happening once again um, that we sort of discussed earlier on this podcast as being anti democratic. So uh, it is, you know, we, if we start taking like a thousand foot view, um, what we are, you know. It, it, a microcosm is not the right word. Obviously, these are very, very different, different conflicts. But when we think about kind of what's happening with Russia versus Ukraine in terms of this like huge, you know, a relatively huge force over a, a much smaller force um, and what we're doing to provide for Ukraine, obviously the tables turn a little bit when it's your allies kind of doing the anti-democratic things and kind of... Uh, doing the thing now of course they're saying they're doing it for self-defense if you ask russia they're they're also doing it in self-defense right so that yeah maybe i'll stop there and see what you think about the latest goings on in israel also not great this is i've we've we've talked about israel several times over the course of this podcast and i have certainly been more of a defender of israel because i, I believe that in in some ways, like their existence, they are they are you new country. They're one of one in the world. In in that, other countries around them want to eliminate their country from existence in a way that doesn't really exist with many other countries in the world. So I I, I tend to give more deference, more latitude towards Israel, and certainly you can read of horrific attacks on Israeli citizens, innocent Israeli Israeli citizens that happen far too frequently and probably don't get enough news. But this is this is not this is another not even not only a great look, but more I think over 150 Palestinians have already been killed this year before we get into like what happened recently in, in the West Bank, which is one of the deadliest years for Palestinians in decades. And at some point it it feels, and again, I am very far removed from this, but it feels like Israel is just pushing further and further. And at some point, what do you expect Palestinians to do? Like we, I'm a big believer in like self-defense. And if you believe in that, if this, this refugee camp that I'm sure you'll get into more like the specific details, like this was set up originally after Israel like took possession of, of the land. And then this was like, all right, the Palestinians had this. And then Israel in 67 took possession of the West Bank. And it was like, all right, well, Palestinians will still operate this camp. And then Israel took possession of the camp. And now it's like they're invading the camp. And uh, again, it's a refugee camp. And so it's, it's hard. And I know there's a lot of tension between Biden and Netanyahu. Because as much, I think, and it's, it's really become a split. And this is probably a, a larger conversation for, for a different day. But 
it's become almost this split in United States politics where either like you're going to blindly support Israel or, or you're like anti-Semitic, uh, which we've talked about uh, before is, is not true. But I would say that this, this latest action has made me increasingly uneasy with what Israel is doing in, in the West Bank and the disputed territories. Yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, I think it's important that people start to come around to it. It's clear that within the U.S. government, which has historically, like Israel's just been a almost like a taboo topic. If you're not going to say anything nice, you don't say anything at all kind of thing. Um, and now, obviously, the progressive left has started to chirp up a little bit more, I think, um, Pramila Jaipal the other day said something about Israel being a racist state. Obviously, um, it was that was great sort of Republican fodder for, you know, she's anti-Semitic. We, we kind of want to do that sort of thing. I obviously saying anything that comes out as a soundbite is going to be uh, taken as a soundbite and then used however it wants. I think she her point at the time was to say that, like, the actions that Israel is taking against Palestinians is specifically directed, like, at Palestinians, so there is, like, an element of race involved. She wasn't necessarily saying that the existence of Israel is racist. Um, that, whatever, that being said, I think there is, like, a, I think there is, unfortunately, too often this, like, short short like memory span of how we operate our like government and military funding and like there's this idea that if we were doing this like yesterday and it was good yesterday that today it's also good like I think that's the we get trapped in these environments where it wasn't that long ago that like our, you know, basically our number one enemy was Germany. And now they're our number one ally in Western Europe, right? Like they're, I think it's odd to me that we place either this like utmost reverence on uh, countries that are, you know, Israel is our beacon for democracy in this like bastion of undemocratic, non-Western uh, autocratic regimes right and so we have to do whatever it is we have to do to hold them up and it's like well what if they're doing stuff that's undemocratic and potentially immoral and potentially like you know borderline uh war crimes like what what then and it's like well i i don't know i can't really i i can't fathom like how we would change our relationship with israel so we stick with it and like, you know, we've talked about this with India, too. There are other places where all of a sudden the the moral uh, imperative to support becomes tenuous when, like, what, what are we exactly supporting? And, and when we don't know, it should give us pause. And instead, we're stuck in these, like, basically these political talking points where it's like, well, we know in 2008, if you had said something, uh, you know, anti anti-Israel that was like a death sentence politically so like today that is still maybe true kind of true mostly true we don't know like it's it's very difficult to evolve our like how we're operating because of like historically how these things have played out in elections and I think that that is 
interesting, but it like traps us in so many ways from actually being able to intake, like, this is what's happening today on the ground. We should be able to incorporate that in terms of, in terms of our response. And I thought Biden did it a little bit when Netanyahu first proposed some of those overhauls, judicial overhauls, but now he's like inviting him to come hang out. And it's just like, a it feels like I'm getting ready for my election. So I need to show everyone that, Hey, Israel, we're so cool. That that's exactly what it feels like. And again, like that's not great morally. It's in, it's almost Ricky, obviously the stakes are way lower with something like that, but it's what we talk about a lot with elections where people be like, well, I need to hang on to my seat because if I, I can't help unless I'm here. And if I'm not here, this, this other person who is a existential threat to the United States is going to take over. That may or may not be true in this actual case, <laughs> but in general, right. It's like the argument is always like, I'll do anything I have to, to stay in this seat so that I can maintain and I can help do good things because generally you like what I do, but if if you're just going to compromise all your morals to stay there, then do I really like what you do? I don't know. And I, it has to be because there was another uh, a gathering of it's it's like Christians United for Israel, which has become more and more popular. And I know just the other day that Nikki Haley was there and Mike Pence was there. And it's pretty much like, you know, whoever is the Republican candidate in the general election is going to say, I stand with Israel and I stand with democracy and, you know, Christian, Christian, Judeo-Christian beliefs as in contrast to President Biden. And so Biden's got to stand up and say, no, I actually do support Israel, which he, which he invites Netanyahu. But Ricky, what you were saying reminds me so much of like President Washington, his farewell address, which is pretty famous, which he warns us against permanent enemies and permanent alliances. And I think in some ways it seems so quaint being like, oh, George, like that was... 230 years ago like what like what do you what do you know now about a, a global society in which we have all of these different you know factions that you never could have possibly fathomed but maybe we ought to give him a little bit more credit and respect and go back to like yeah i think he knew what he was talking about there and to just blindly support israel or any other ally of ours and just blindly hate any potential enemy of ours that's not questioning what we're doing is never a good thing. I think we leave that one with George. Always a good idea. We're going to keep this next segment in the Mediterranean and talk briefly about the uh, tragedy that unfolded in Greece a few weeks ago. Um, Basically, this the for for those who are unaware or hadn't heard much about the details, um, a ship called the Adriania uh, capsized and sank off the coast of off the coast of Greece, killing more than six hundred migrants. Um, this is like you know perhaps one of the most uh, shocking instances of a capsized boat killing so many people, but it's not, um, it's not an infrequent one, um, from like North Africa, these vessels are leaving sort of all the time, uh, to try and get asylum in to, for, for these migrants to try and get onto European Union shores and then apply for asylum. Uh, the European Union though, historically sort of friendly to asylum seekers, has basically resorted to um, 
a policy of like not helping or like specifically deterring these boats from ever making landfall um, with the migrants on them. And so in this particular instance, I think the boat itself like lost power and there it's even more shocking because it seems like there were opportunities for the Greek Coast Guard to step in and maybe help avert this disaster. And they did not. I don't know the, I don't, I probably don't know enough about the details, but I think for me that the important facet of the story is that we had this ginormous human disaster around, you know, this contentious issue of immigration. And it is obviously on the extreme side of things, but it gives you a sense of what people who are fleeing the countries that they live in are risking when they're trying to get to places like Western Europe or the United States. Um, And of course, these are problems that don't get the money or the attention that other problems, some of which we've discussed earlier on this podcast, do. Well, that's the angle of the story that I thought was most interesting here. And really, I hadn't heard of this until you brought it to my attention a couple of weeks ago. And you brought it to my attention really in contrast to how much attention the submarine, the vessel that was going to seek the Titanic, going to visit the Titanic was getting. And obviously, that was a tragedy in of itself. Five people lost their lives. But it garnered, it dominated media, traditional, social for a week. Uh, It really crossed the world because we had United States citizens, British citizens, Indian citizens that were on this. So this was something that kind of captivated the whole world. And obviously the Titanic is a a unique ship and its lore is historic. And so I understand it had a lot of aspects to the story that were interesting to people. But ultimately, that was a a tragedy of five people. I hadn't even heard of this. And as you pointed out, over 600 people died. And so I I had to go and and look for this story. And I think that's that was one of the takeaways to me. And this happens. People say this a lot about media. And this is one of those examples where it's like, well, this is exhibit A of like what gets attention in media, like white white people, rich people. And like, that's really what happened here is like we have two tragedies in the sea that were happening simultaneously really like in in mid-june and one dominated worldwide attention and the other didn't and one probably there's not a whole lot that governments can do about versus one that is actually a problem that we we could attempt to address and solve and it's the only other aspect so you maybe can touch on that but the only other aspect that i thought or kind of came into my mind when i was thinking about this story was that sometimes here in the U S we get so focused on ourselves and think we have such like a unique set of problems of like, look, look at the the immigration problems that we have on our Southern border. And we, we do have those problems, but Southern European countries and in a lot of ways, Eastern European countries are also dealing with these same issues. And that's not to say that like tragedies don't happen along the United States borders all of the time, but this is one of those where it seems at least that there are accounts that Greece wasn't exactly eager to help these people. Yeah, this is, um, I I think those are 
Or, uh, I mean, I feel like you you touched on a lot of uh, important facets of of this story, particularly in contrast to to the other one. The is it Ocean Gate? What is it called? No. Uh, anyways, the the under the like the submarine-esque thing that was visiting the Titanic. I think the I had seen the two put like juxtaposed together when. I think someone on social media was just commenting about how, you know, the, these people who were trying to, to get a glimpse of the Titanic were brave, you know, independent uh, explorers and adventurers. And then the, those who are on, on this Greek vessel are just sort of collectively the migrants and you don't know anything really about their individual stories as if, they didn't also have lives before they got on that, you know, on the boat for the last time. And, and that, um, I think that's, yeah, like you said, from here, it's very easy for us to get kind of caught up in our own things and also sort of not realize or not realize, or maybe not appreciate that like we value our individuality so much and yet we're kind of comfortable allowing groups of people to be lumped as just like, you know, the, the broader immigrants, um, illegal immigrants, uh, as if they don't have that same story. And that's, uh, kind of a tragedy of just how we have, allowed the situation to unfold but then yeah lastly what you said i think is very interesting and something that we've tracked a little bit just sort of the parallel rise of the right-wing populist type of governments obviously we you know we know what's been going on in italy recently um we know trump here in the u.s but even boris johnson with brexit uh before that there have you know the anti-immigrant sentiment has been one that has gained a lot of popularity recently. Um, And that's, I think that's sad because it leads to this like dehumanization and this idea that, Hey, we know that this migrant boat is off the coast and they're in distress. And yet we, you know, we're sort of choosing to look the other way. And I think right now they're trying to like, kind of uh pin this on the individuals who are part of the whatever the greek coast guard vessel but i mean to me that's such a it's such a wasted opportunity to like revisit the entire way that we're approaching this and that's whether that's here in the united states or or elsewhere in europe that like clearly we have a problem and the solutions that we have are not working and we're kind of allowing it to just like continue to fester um, and it's creating these really, really bad outcomes. Yeah. And that's, I think you correctly pointed this out, that it doesn't mean that this isn't a serious problem and that states like Texas and Arizona and New Mexico are not like really have like legitimate claims that like all of these migrants coming in through the United States southern border illegally is like a huge strain on their resources, just as Greece and Italy and, and Portugal and Spain also have like legitimate concerns about like, how do we, we don't have the infrastructure and the resources to deal with all of these problems to like help to shield the rest of Europe from these problems, just like our the Southwest shields a lot of 
the other states here from from like the actual implications of illegal immigration. But it's it's both those things. I'm acknowledging that like, hey, Greece and Italy can be right that this is a huge problem and Texas and Arizona can be right that this is a huge problem. But also, how do we keep in mind? How do we legislate while keeping the humanity of these individuals in mind and not it's I think it's so easy. And in some ways, it's kind of necessary to think of these people as like migrants or immigrants or elite or it's because you have to legislate on policy on groups but these are individuals and you can't lose sight of that it's a hard it's a hard i'm I'm not saying that this is an easy thing to do but you would hope that a a tragedy like this maybe gives some perspective to and the the policies that we currently have that are currently not working all over the world yeah all right Final segment we have, and we think this ties in a little bit, at least in the sense of what gets news. And Ricky, you and I, I guess in some ways are included in this because we, what we do here is news, right? Like we talk about things that are in the news and some of that is what we are ingesting from media that we consume, but also things that we want to talk about. And so one of the things that I wanted to talk about, at least briefly, was what's going on in Sudan because there is a crisis in Sudan and it doesn't seem like it's getting much coverage and it would be hypocritical of me to say that it's not getting much coverage. And then when we do an international segment and talk about five other countries, most of whom are like European countries to to then not talk about this one country in Africa. But I think this is exactly what happens a lot. So there is a crisis going on in Sudan. It's been going on in Sudan since April. I would imagine that Many of our listeners are aware that 20 years ago in Dafur, um, there was one of the arguably greatest humanitarian tragedies, crises, uh, genocides in in, in history, where uh, residents of, of Dafur were 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 murdered. Uh, it was a it was a genocide. I don't know how else to, how to describe it. And so 20 years later. Now we have a, a similar situation unfolding, it appears. Back in April, somewhat of a civil war broke out in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum between two generals who had previously been allies but are now rivals and they were fighting over control. But that fight has continued now, despite attempts by Saudi Arabia and the United States to broker ceasefires and try to arrange a, a peace accord they haven't been successful and fighting has continued to rage. And one fighting rages in a country, obviously that it opens up vacuums for other things to happen. And that's currently, it looks like happening in Dafur again, where it looks like this group that may be descended from the group that committed the genocide 20 years ago is now committing similar genocides uh, or at least genocide's a large word at this point, but at least targeting individuals based on their ethnicity in Dafur again. And reading a little bit on this, Ricky, was heartbreaking because what you have now is kids, like adults, people in the 20 to 40 year old range that were kids in 2003 and lost their families. People are probably aware that like the Lost Boys of Sudan was like a a big thing that had happened or people were made aware of post the genocide. But these people who then chose to stay in Dafur and Sudan and live there and raise their families now they have kids who are going through the same thing and are watching, you know, their parents die and be killed. And I don't know. I don't like 
with any of these topics. I'm not an expert on it, but uh, it felt like it wasn't getting enough attention, certainly compared to what's happening, how much attention we're giving to other things in the world. And I think not only have hundreds, if not thousands, people already died, but over 2 million people have been displaced and uh, displaced within Sudan. I think 700,000 have already had to flee the country, which into countries like Chad, uh, which obviously strains a lot of resources in those countries as well. And it just feels like one of those terrible situations that doesn't get any attention because it's just Africa. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, I, I, I completely agree that it's, yet another one of these news stories that that completely sort of slipped from, you know, under my radar. And I really, until you brought it up today, I hadn't been following it too closely. I mean, it's one of those snippets that you hear about something either in the Middle East or in Africa, and you kind of just chalk it up to like, well, these are sorts of the things that happen over there. But yes. really, yeah. yeah, it it hadn't been happening for quite some time. Um and now this country that, although it was re- sort of recently taken over by the military coup between the two guys who are now fighting each other, there were some hopes that, okay, maybe they will return power um, to civilian groups and maybe they will become a democracy. And this is, I think, maybe the the tricky point. And so I'll potentially go out on a limb here, but curious what you think. I think there, the U S sort of sets itself up for problems of like, just like moral consistency when these types of things happen in places where we choose to do nothing. And you could argue, well, you know, Ukraine for us has more strategic significance than someplace in Africa. You could Possible. I mean, I think you could almost equally say that, like, not really. And we've spent over a hundred billion dollars in Ukraine already. And you know what? What? What have we done to try and mitigate kind of the all the human rights violations, all of the things that we're saying we're fighting against in Ukraine against Russia? Like, what have we done in in this situation? And and obviously, while the U.S public in general is far less informed about what's going on here. The state department knows what's going on. Like we're actively making choices on where to, where to spend resources and where to not. And it's hard not to draw parallels to like, you know, how many divers they sent down to look for this ship, this thing for five people versus the rescue efforts that they put together to go after the migrant ship in Greece. It's just like very hard not to see the situations and, and follow the narrative of like, yeah, we care about certain things and we care about injustices in certain places. And in other places we sort of shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just life. And that's just how things go. And yeah, it's, I don't, I'm not advocating necessarily for any type of military intervention. I just don't know how we can go about doing these in certain places or or spending the resources that we do in certain places and then shrugging our shoulders in other places and, and, and sort of beating our chest as kind of the, the moral beacons for, for how governments and countries of our size and our political power should operate. 
Yeah, I go back frequently in situations like this to Elie Wiesel, who wrote Night, but which is about the Holocaust. Uh, arguably, I think it's a must read for everybody. But the book was originally titled "In the World Remains Silent," and his his the rest of his life after surviving the Holocaust and writing Night was that kind of like the King quote: "It injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere." Right, and like that's. I think that's exactly kind of what what's happening in this situation where we, we are privileged enough to choose what conflicts that we get in and which conflicts we choose to get in. It's frequently, it seems to be like the ones that protect people that look like us. And I don't know how you cannot think that that's somewhat of an evaluation of whose life, which lives mean more. And I, I don't think that necessarily that's a calculation that people are doing consciously or objectively, but I think there are real parallels you can draw between what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in Sudan, like just like the parallels you drew between the Titanic submarine and what happened in Greece. And just, if you just look at like the resources that we spend on it, I think that that tells you what it is, right? It's like, what do they what do you say? Like, look where governments spend their, their money. That'll tell you what they care about. Like that's, uh, it's it's yeah it's it's not it, i guess i'm just like a little bit sad about it but you you would think that situations like this that the world will come together to try to prevent stuff like this from happening yeah and it feels like we have the resources and we're either scared of spending them or we don't know how to spend them and maybe that's true but it just doesn't doesn't feel right. Exactly. I think that that's a really good point. And like you said correctly, I don't want or expect us to be everywhere. Like the whole point is that the United States doesn't have to be, not the whole point, but like that's what we have both argued in different ways that we don't want the United States to be the world's policeman, that we feel like we have to intervene in every single every single military conflict that's happening all over the world. That's not realistic. It's not fair. It's not the point of the US military. But to... And again, it's not to say that the United States hasn't done anything in this situation, but it certainly doesn't seem like we're doing enough. And you would hope that if the United States really does care about democracy and about humanitarian values, that we would be more involved in situations like this. Moral consistency, Ricky. I feel like that's kind of, if if there was a through line for this episode, that might be it. Yeah. I I think that that's... uh about as good a place as we could leave this. This was not, I don't, I don't know if I really gave you an opportunity to leave us on an optimistic note, other than to perhaps say that like, I don't, I think the history of the world shows us that it is not like, there's no such thing as like too late. Like we, there are always opportunities to improve on like what we're doing and how we're doing it. And sometimes we kind of need to step back on, the things that we have been doing and the sort of the unequivocal truths that we have accepted and re-examine them and see if there's like a course correction to be made and, and, and how we could potentially do that. I like that. That <laughs> optimism from me. <laughs> <laughs> love that. Love that from you. All right. Well, good to talk to you as always. And uh, we'll leave it there. Iron Man. See ya. Yeah.
We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head, folks of different minds Because even though it did not share as we share that American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz